Hello, and welcome to the 26th, 27th, 26th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we have a slight change of pace. Instead of being the one who interviews, I am being interviewed by Gennady Stolyarov, who has already been on the show. We are discussing some of my past guests and some of the emerging trends in biotechnology. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. I am very eager to converse with my guest today, Adam Alonzi, who has spoken with me before about life extension. He is the author of the fiction books Praying for Death, A Zombie Apocalypse, and A Plank in Reason. He is also a futurist, inventor, do-it-yourself enthusiast, biotechnologist, programmer, molecular gastronomist, consummate dilettante, and columnist at The Indian Economist. You can also listen to his podcasts at adamalonzi.libson.com and read his blog at adamalonzi.wordpress.com. And actually, the reason why I invited Adam to join us today is for him to discuss some of the fascinating conversations he has had with entrepreneurs in the biotechnology industry. Uh, Adam, you have, uh, by this point, had 25 episodes of your podcast, and you've interviewed some luminaries, including uh, Maria Konovalenko of the Longevity Cookbook, uh, Alex uh, Zhabarinkov of In Silico Medicine, and Elizabeth Parrish of BioViva. So uh, tell us a bit about what you learned from these individuals in any order, or if you want to give a general overview, that would be great as well. Well, as an Austrian economist, I'm sure you have a preference for going from the bottom up. However, I am very fond of bottom, so I like to save them for last. In the broad picture, the big picture, aging needs to be reclassified as a disease. Even though it has all of the characteristics of one, even though it could be called the mother of all diseases, we still consider it, and by we, I mean people in general, consider it a normal, natural process. And even though, for whatever reason, the cries of people suffering from diseases, age-related diseases, fall on deaf ears, Eventually, it will become a necessity to develop these therapies. Because, of course, the financial burden will become too great. Even in a largely automated society, we need healthy, able-bodied people to do basic tasks. My most recent podcast was with Liz Parrish of BioViva, and we discussed gene therapy. Now this is an instance, the story of gene therapy is an instance in which governments have failed stupendously, and particularly the U.S. government. 
1999 there was a trial and one person died as a result. This is very unfortunate and we should always lament the loss of life and do whatever we can to prevent it from happening again. However, as an actuary, you know that on that very same day, many more people died as the result of over-the-counter drugs, as the result of prescription drugs, and as the result of recreational drugs, including alcohol. It's always seemed odd to me that we like to separate alcohol from other drugs, especially hard liquors. At this time, most of the trials in this country for gene therapies have been for monogenetic diseases like sickle cell, thalassemia, and they're very promising. As we'll explore later in the discussion, this doesn't quite cut it when you're talking about cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, etc. It requires a more nuanced understanding of how the gene or genes relate to the rest of the regulatory network. But this does not mean that a single gene cannot make a big difference. And this is the case with the telomerase therapy BioViva is developing for Alzheimer's, which is an unconventional approach. There was another trial in this country for SCID, which is a severe immunodeficiency disorder. And two of the participants developed leukemia. This raises some questions in the area of bioethics and self-determination. Virtually everyone, except maybe a bioethicist, can agree that terminally ill patients should have access to treatments that can possibly extend their lives or cure their diseases. However, does someone have the right to do these things, to seek these treatments, if they perceive their condition as too painful or too disabling? The answer, again, is obviously yes, because it is absolutely ludicrous to think that anyone, particularly the state, can dictate to us what we can or cannot do with our own bodies. Yes, it's interesting that it seems to me a lot of the hyper-caution that the FDA and similar national regulatory agencies have been exercising toward gene therapy is the result of a simple fear of the new. That is, uh, as you correctly pointed out, a lot of people engage in activities that involve risk, even if the activities are entirely well-intentioned, like taking a pharmaceutical medication as prescribed to cure an ailment. But many people even go beyond that. They uh, drink alcohol, they smoke tobacco, and yet those activities are not prohibited, perhaps simply because they are the devil we know. And uh, unfortunately, there is a skewed risk perception with regard to the uh, metaphorical angels we don't know, the gene therapies that could save a lot of lives, and certainly there could be adverse side effects. Uh, as you mentioned, 
1999, a patient died because of a viral vector that was used in gene therapy, but conventional medicine also utilizes a lot of procedures from which people die sometimes, and yet on balance, those procedures do save a lot of lives. And of course, it's desirable to improve the safety and efficacy of these procedures, but shutting them down is not the proper way to do that. Experimentation is the proper way to do that. And it does seem to me there should be a push to change the culture to at the very least permit terminally ill individuals who don't have another choice uh, to try out these approaches and they might work, they might not work. But at the very least, these people will be permitted the autonomy to fight for their lives and something very beneficial might come out of this for future generations of patients who might be in similar circumstances. So uh, I know uh, Elizabeth Parrish is a very outspoken advocate of this. And uh, I'm curious as to your impressions of your conversation with her with regard to her methods as well as her uh, approach toward the public discourse. Do you think uh, she is in a good position to sway the public discourse and perhaps even sway some U.S. federal regulatory agencies to recognize the validity of what she's trying to do? Liz and I spoke for three hours total, one on the record, two off. She was one of my favorite guests, so I may be a little bit biased. She is an excellent spokesperson for gene therapy and for her company. Her passion, I think, is a little bit unsettling to some people, but for better or worse, a certain amount of ruthlessness is necessary to get what we need. As, because it's not really a matter of wanting it, we need these things as soon as possible. The myostatin inhibitor alone would be very popular with a lot of people who want to look a little bit younger, lower their cholesterol, lose body fat, gain muscle mass, and this ties in with a book on regenerative medicine I read, in which the man was saying that some of the advances going on in that field are from the cosmetic surgery sector. And this is because unless a person has a disease, they are more concerned with superficial nonsense. And I imagine that strong myostatin inhibitors once they're taken up by different athletic agencies and they involve men playing with balls, which of course is more important than dying children or suffering elderly people, they will gain traction. They will become popular. They will gain social acceptability. And everyone will have to keep up with the Joneses. So gene doping will become ubiquitous, undoubtedly. Now, do you think uh, there is, let's say, a bit of a public relations obstacle to acceptance of genetic modification per se, simply due to irrational fears of the sort we have seen around GMOs, genetically modified organisms and food, in spite of the fact that uh, the use of GMOs uh, as food 
uh, has been shown to be safe empirically. Trillions of portions of genetically modified food have been consumed over the past 25 years. Nobody has died. Nobody has a documented case of illness from it. Even some former hardline opponents of genetically modified foods have uh, considered the evidence and have determined that uh, these are not a threat. And yet, even when uh, some Greenpeace activists are deciding to accept GMOs, there is still this perception of frankenfoods among, let's say, uh, the unenlightened masses, for lack of a better term. And much of the, uh, let's say, thriving of the GMO industry occurs simply because a lot of people uh, just buy food. They don't have a ready way of recognizing, oh, this is genetically modified, this isn't. So they eat the food, they're fine. Uh, but then if you ask some of them in discourse, well, what do you think about genetic modification? They'll say, oh, frankenfoods are bad. They can kill you. Uh, so how do we overcome this uh, terrible irrationality, this visceral resistance to anything that seems to be, quote, too much tampering with nature? And if it's hard to get people to accept tomatoes or rice uh, that has been genetically modified, how do you get them to accept themselves being genetically modified? If little Billy gets a gene that increases NGF production or BDNF production and suddenly begins to understand algebra, you better believe that little Timmy's parents are going to get him a shot that is as strong, if not stronger. It will be at first a want something people are cautious about, but as time goes on, they will recognize it as a necessity. Just as performance-enhancing drugs are in sports and increasingly in academics, all you have to do is check the statistics about Adderall and nootropic abuse. I believe, and I know, and we've had this discussion before, that government can play a very significant role in research. All we have to do is look at Bell Labs. And over time, I would hope that the officials who represent us realize they are just as likely to succumb to all of these age-related diseases as anyone else. It doesn't matter what title you have. Inevitably, you're going to end up as worm chow putrefied maggot food. The problem here, which is inherent in government, in NGOs, and in large corporations, is institutional sluggishness. There are too many people who are not familiar with these new ideas and who refuse to accept them. And that is another thing Liz and I touched upon. Pharmaceutical executives, old men who are knocking on death's door, are still dismissive of this research. The irony is absolutely overwhelming. But I suppose that is what happens when someone's mind becomes rigid with age. Lo and behold, however, we could keep that plasticity through these techniques 
and I really and sincerely hope we find some sort of chemical cure for ignorance. Yes, and I think it's very important to emphasize all of those diseases that, uh, let's again call them the unenlightened masses, fear will arise from genetic modification, can actually be cured by genetic modification. So if you're afraid of cancer, uh, gene therapy may be a promising pathway to getting rid of a lot of highly intractable cancers that plague hundreds of thousands of people today. Uh, now, one interesting comment that Elizabeth Parrish made in her uh, discussion with you is that her initial trials of the gene therapies will be conducted outside the borders of the United States. And she didn't really uh, elaborate, at least uh, in the reporting, where they would be conducted. But uh, it's clear she perceives rightly uh, a lot of uh, obstacles from the FDA, and she is frustrated with those. So do you think there will be enough jurisdictions throughout the world that are amenable and hospitable to this kind of experimentation? Uh, and if so, do you have any hypotheses of what those jurisdictions might be, or if there are alternatives like, say, uh, cruise ships, where some medical procedures can be uh, performed today without FDA oversight, or even in the slightly more distant future seasteads, uh, which are essentially floating modular ocean communities outside the territorial waters of any sovereign country. I am aware of a few well-meaning, but ultimately futile attempts to control and regulate gene therapy and genetics research in general. As we both know, and as our listeners know, this research is becoming cheaper, and if you have the technical know-how, you will certainly accomplish whatever you have set out to do, which can be a good thing, because a researcher who wants to treat his wife or daughter and take matters into his own hands, it could be a great boon to humanity. I am of Italian descent, and that half of me does not like to pry into offshore matters. And the German half says, I know nothing. I saw nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> Now, Alex's company uses in silico methods, ways of predicting how drugs will interact with the body by using powerful CPUs. There was a team, in fact, using deep learning methods recently that discovered 30 new genes implicated with autism with a sample size of four people. I'm sure if you scrutinized their methods and their data, you might be able to shoot a couple holes in what they've done. Regardless, this is a very significant achievement. And this same team was doing research on cancer.
Yes, at the very least, it seems that deep learning and really any technique that allows one to rapidly process large volumes of data can give one some promising ideas of where to look and where to devote more attention, even if uh, some apparent correlation uh, doesn't hold up from a causal uh, perspective after added scrutiny, at the very least, you have some candidates. And if you rule out a few candidates, well, you advanced your knowledge that way. Uh, and furthermore, uh, now instead of trying to look for a needle in a haystack, you may be looking for a needle among a set of a few needles and a few uh, units of hay, a few straws that might look like needles superficially. Uh, so uh, yes, in silico medicine is a very interesting enterprise. I saw some of their videos and uh, I was impressed. Uh, I was impressed by their uh, team's graphic design skills as well. And I was also impressed at their explanation of what they were doing. Uh, they seemed to be able to sum it up very nicely within a few minutes. And hopefully uh, they'll be able to get uh, a lot more investors interested in their endeavor. Uh, so what do you think, in addition to these two enterprises, BioViva and Insilico Medicine that we discussed, of uh, Maria Konovalenko and her longevity cookbook, it recently uh, earned $50,000 on Kickstarter, and uh, they are now in the drafting stages, but they're actually going to bring some bioinformatic analysis to bear on uh, essentially what kinds of recipes, what kinds of ingredients have been uh, shown at least to be correlated with longer lifespans. Uh, what do you think about this effort and its prospects? When you want something badly, often you want it to happen quickly and you want it to happen all at once. Get rich overnight, lose 20 pounds in 10 days, etc, etc. Usually these schemes either do not work or they are fraught with danger. The same applies to the goal of life extension. Liz sort of pits traditional pharmaceutical interventions against gene therapy, and I am inclined to agree with her that a permanent solution is certainly superior using the body's own mechanisms. For the time being, however, we need various interventions, which include diet and exercise. And Maria's cookbook was fantastic for public relations. She is the bright and pretty face of transhumanism. And I am expecting the longevity bag from her that I won in her contest. It has not arrived yet. I do not foresee there being a sudden decrease in the demand for organic chemists. I do not think we will suddenly have gene therapies for every ailment known to man. 
and that means we will continue to have to explore other realms of regenerative medicine and continue to advance along the way in tissue engineering and small molecule research. And it's certainly not a dead end as one of the major obstacles to drug safety and efficacy rest in the delivery mechanisms and there are strides being made in that area. For example, SARMs, selective androgen receptor modulators, target bone and muscle tissue specifically. In other words, they would be very helpful to people suffering from osteoporosis and sarcopenia, which most people do to some degree as they age, and it begins to set in as early as mid-30s. Cognitive decline begins as early as 24, which is very disturbing, to say the least. Yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> I, I'm a few years past 24 now, and uh, it is it is now becoming uh, quite a bit more urgent for me to get these technologies uh, out into the market for general public consumption sometime soon, sometime within the next two, two and a half decades. Uh, because uh, if I uh, am able to live uh, the same number of years again as I have lived already, I will be 56 years old. And so by, by that time, uh, serious signs of senescence will have set in already. And I would like to see some serious reversals uh, become available to me at that point. Uh, so I, I really do hope uh, that there is a suite of solutions that is made available uh, by that time. So uh, I think in terms of Maria's project, what she's trying to do is uh, get people uh, in a sense to build that bridge toward the revolution in gene therapy, toward longevity escape velocity uh, more generally, uh, so that people don't perish from, let's say, the more uh, basic uh, types of causes uh, for instance, if one were to eat deep fried foods every single meal of every single day, probably by one's mid 50s, some serious uh, cardiovascular adverse effects uh, are going to set in. Uh, so uh, it's a question, though, of whether there's anything more than common sense that can help uh, guide people in that, uh, in the sense that, yes, one can eat in moderation, one can eat uh, a a balanced diet in terms of a diversity of ingredients. Uh, one can try to uh, balance one's calorie intake and calorie expenditure. One can try to exercise. So the interesting question with regard to the longevity cookbook is, is there anything beyond that? Uh, is there anything that this, uh, let's say, Aristotelian wisdom that is accessible to anybody uh, doesn't capture? And that even if somebody were to follow it but miss out on uh, some other details of emerging research, uh, there might be some adverse side effects. So what do you think about that? We have to take precautions. We have to do what is most likely to keep us healthy in terms of diet, exercise, and medical interventions. We cannot hope for miracles either from supernatural sources or from 
very concrete and tangible ones because the future is always uncertain. We, they may be available and we may not be able to afford them or they may be available and we may not be aware of them or we may have difficulty finding out about them. My, but when it comes down to it, our health is largely determined by a roll of the dice. And this role is meiosis as well as stochastic processes that modulate epigenetic factors, how genes are expressed over our lifetime, which is why one monozygotic twin may have schizophrenia, another may not, even though they are genetically identical. Alex Javorankov is critical of comparative biology, and rightly so, because many animal studies do not translate well to humans. And there was a recent article on PubMed about this topic that he shared, and I posted on my wall, because it's important. We shouldn't get people's hopes up. However, comparative biology is not a fruitless endeavor. We may study two different species of birds, a crow and a parrot. They are the same size and they are closely related. And we have to ask, why does one live so much longer than the others? Or study birds in general and wonder why, in spite of their high metabolic rates, some of them manage to live very long lives. In some we have found longer telomeres, in others we have found differences in their phospholipid bilayers, which prevents oxidative damage. And these things can serve as inspiration for engineering negligible senescence. I am not saying it will have direct and immediate benefit to humans, but it gives us ideas. Just as watching birds inspired people many years down the road to build flying machines. I actually think uh, one of the portions of my children's book, Death is Wrong, that is likely to be most effective for kids is the listing of some exceptionally long-lived animals who don't appear to senesce, uh, because I think once young people or anybody reading this book uh, get exposed to the possibilities, what is out there in nature already, uh, they could realize, well, the human life cycle isn't the only one that's out there. And you mentioned naked mole rats. Uh, they're another fascinating case because uh, they live for about uh, two to three decades, if I recall correctly, they don't get cancer. And compare that to the typical lab mouse who lives two to three years and with some uh, caloric restriction treatments can uh, live up to four years, a little bit longer with some genetic modification. It could live for a little longer than four years, but there's just this vast gulf of difference, almost a, an eightfold difference in uh, maximum lifespans, uh, which is just fascinating and definitely uh, fertile ground for further study. And I also recall even if one visits a pet store and sees uh, all the different birds that are available for sale there are the little parakeets that can live for 
five to 10 years. And then there are some parrots who can live up to 90 years. Uh, and that's fascinating too, because uh, they are uh, quite closely related genetically, uh, at least as closely related as we are to uh, other species of primates. So uh, it's quite interesting uh, to note that it's, it's not even uh, so much the lineage of an organism that matters, but even uh, within more closely related types of organisms, you see huge variation uh, among uh, maximum lifespans. So uh, it, is uh, it is very curious and very intriguing for me. Uh, now, what do you think in terms of applications? Say, uh, let's say there are intense studies of naked mole rats and how it is that they manage to avoid getting cancer, how it is that they manage to avoid senescing at as rapid a rate as ordinary lab mice. To what extent would a similar intervention in humans work? Or are we just far too different from the mole rats and the mice? A clever genetic or genomic engineer could get human cells to produce the large amounts of hyaluronic acid that are purportedly the source of their resistance to cancer. I would imagine we would still have to tackle a number of other oncogenes in order to make ourselves bulletproof. And as I mentioned earlier, with pharmaceutical specificity is key here. A myostatin inhibitor, if it affects skeletal muscle, is wonderful. However, if it strongly affects cardiac tissue as well, that could be disastrous. I'm not saying this would be the case with hyaluronic acid or with any of the various oncogenes we might find in naked mole rats or other animals, but we have to keep a systems approach in mind. So you mentioned, uh, I think, a subject that we should expand upon, and that is the ability of ordinary people, uh, that is to say people who aren't affiliated with large corporations, who don't have university research budgets, who are essentially uh, do-it-yourself enthusiasts to perform research. And I'm curious as to your assessment of how far that research uh, to date has advanced biomedical science and its prospects for the future in terms of discoveries being made broadly available in terms of treatments being developed uh, on the basis of those discoveries. Where do you think uh, that area of research is right now and where do you think it's going to take us? Right now, well, let's go back to before I was born, back before you were born. Right now. Well, first let's Let's explore why it hasn't happened sooner. And the answer is very simple. It was too costly. And it required too much expertise. If you look at an old molecular biology textbook, you will see some confusing methods for sequencing DNA and for analyzing it. And we have come light years since then. We've come light years since the early 2000s. Now with CRISPR, Anyone with $30 and fairly low level of skill can modify cells. 
modify the genes within the cells, which of course results in modification of the cell itself. One of the concerns people raise, and it's a valid one, no doubt, is what a malicious person could do with this sort of technology. I have two responses to it. One is the fact that since it is so widely available, since you can purchase DNA sequences for a few dollars, enough to do some really wonderful or really nasty things, as many people as possible need to become biologically literate. The next big cure or breakthrough may not come from a slow agency, but from one person in their garage. The other one, which is a more compelling argument, is people like Ted Kaczynski, who are at once very intelligent as well as psychotic and mission-oriented, are rare. Most psychopaths are impulsive, and that is why they remain in the dregs of society. And the psychopaths who rise to the top tend to preserve themselves and commit white-collar crimes. They're not going around killing people, although they are or can be very destructive as well. With programs like Arcturus, like Eterna, Fold It, Everyone can participate in the scientific process, and this trend will undoubtedly increase with time, as will the necessity for becoming more familiar with the computational side of biology. All biologists will need to become programmers. Yes, I'm inclined to agree with you. It seems to me the overwhelming majority of criminals and, uh, let's say, evildoers are not brilliant, nefarious masterminds who are plotting something in secret, some sophisticated grand scheme to uh, destroy the world or take revenge on humanity. Uh, those are essentially cartoon supervillains, but the overwhelming majority of real criminals are quite crude and unimaginative, uh, which is why they resort to violent crime in the first place, which is why they haven't been able to find productive, peaceful occupations for themselves. But uh, yes, they can lash out viscerally at other human beings. Uh, they can attack with a gun or uh, a blunt object. But in order for them to carry those schemes out with any success, they have to be very simple, basic types of schemes that can be stopped through a modicum of intelligent and I use the word intelligent with emphasis, law enforcement. Uh, so not uh, police just brutally subduing anybody who looks at them funny, uh, but rather uh, say intelligent uh, techniques for patrolling in the right areas, uh, setting up environments in such a way as to deter criminal activity, doing some good background research on people and figuring out who is actually uh, the greatest threat in a particular area. Uh, so it, it does seem to me that the prospect of some malicious biohacker doing something uh, in a remote cabin in the woods or in a garage somewhere that's going to start an epidemic uh, or uh, let's say disable a large amount of our infrastructure, it's very implausible. Just like 
uh, to me, it seems that somebody designing a uh, malicious Terminator AI or uh, nanobots that will precipitate the gray goo scenario is similarly implausible just because the vast majority of researchers are uh, fairly refined individuals who do think about side effects and who do think about risks and who do work with other researchers uh, with the intention of achieving something constructive. And of course, there would be a desire to build in some safeguards and to collaborate with the rest of humanity rather than opposing the rest of humanity. Uh, and I think this is an interesting bridge to another area that you've explored in your podcast, which is artificial intelligence. Uh, you've interviewed uh, Luis Arana of Robots Without Borders, and he has a very, uh, and I will use this uh, flatteringly efficient uh, kind of startup organization in the sense that uh, he doesn't really seem to uh, focus on making a profit at all. He just wants uh, for himself and his colleagues to work on developing a viable AI from the resources that are already available and put in a lot of time, put in uh, a lot of effort to do it. But uh, I was curious uh, with regard to your impressions of your conversation with him and uh, his methods and how those methods are different from uh, what has historically been pursued in AI research. Well, now don't I sound like a dumb hick. I've been calling him Lewis this whole time. Luis, all right. As I told my girlfriend shortly after concluding the podcast with him, he is a better man than I am. I really respect his humanitarianism, his altruism, and his dedication to what he's doing. But I don't wish to veer too far off the topic of biology and to related disciplines. AI is, or I should say advanced statistical methods, because that's really what AI comes down to, is crucial for everything we're talking about here. It is the glue that ties together new drug delivery systems, new drugs, genomic simulations, really simulating anything that you need in a biological system. So metabolomics, proteomics, probably forgetting a couple of the omics, but it is difficult to speak extemporaneously. And these AI approaches if we must call them that, have already found their way into fairly mundane medical applications, uh, mundane but nevertheless very crucial, like analyzing radiographs, x-rays, blood work, and organ function. Sometimes uh, they make very stupid mistakes. For example, in a podcast I recorded with Peter Rothman that unfortunately was lost to the dreadful recording software I was using at the time. A facial recognition system he helped develop was extremely accurate in the overwhelming majority of cases, but occasionally it would mix up two very dissimilar looking people for no discernible reason. So these systems still need human insight and guidance. We have not yet 
come to the level of artificial intuition, just artificial intelligence, which is, is bound by the intelligence of its that creator. makes sense yes and i know that there have been experiments in the recent past with uh, the use of nanoparticles for instance to de uh, to deliver targeted cancer treatments so that instead of doing this massive area damage that chemotherapy does you can actually target only the cancerous cells and leave the rest of them alone I know of two patents at this time that deliver cancer in that manner and are being used currently. My partner's doctoral thesis was about the delivery of nanoparticles and the treatment of renal disease. And our grant proposal was about the computational design of nanoparticles, which is a field I believe will explode very soon. So a promising field of research uh, for people to get into if they want. Uh, would you say the barriers to entry are uh, so, uh, let's say, modest that a DIY enthusiast with a few thousand dollars and a space to work and access to the cutting edge research could make uh, a significant contribution? On the computational side, the main barrier to entry is a lack of brain power and training. On the fabrication side, most of the syntheses I have read about for common drug delivery systems are not terribly difficult and would not be challenging to someone with a bachelor's degree in organic chemistry. There are obvious occupational hazards to working with volatile chemicals and to working with very tiny things that you in, can inhale and could potentially harm you. But if you take the proper safety precautions, as you probably would if you were even aware of these things, there wouldn't be an issue. My concern is the possible introduction of regulations into what can be done in a home and what cannot. That's very interesting. Uh, and again, a path that someone who has perhaps received a bachelor's degree in biology and wants to make a contribution could look into. Now, uh, on the topic of artificial intelligence, before we uh, go on to regenerative medicine, do you think uh, an AI similar to, say, IBM's Watson, which after it won its uh, Jeopardy game, uh, was repurposed as a kind of medical assistance software? Uh, it processed a lot of the uh, cutting-edge medical literature and is now uh, being used to help doctors diagnose conditions with some human uh intervention, perhaps some human correction if uh, there is an illogical result, as you mentioned, could happen. So what do you see uh, as the potential for this human AI collaboration in both researching and developing uh, biotechnological treatments for ailments and then in uh, deploying them in a clinical setting? If you have, uh, say, a 
difficult case, a patient who's manifesting some strange symptoms, doctor can't quite figure out what it is, but he uses this AI assistant to uh, do some very rapid research and at least provide a few hypotheses. Oh, it could be condition X that you haven't considered yet. My main concern with any computer system, particularly one that's been used for medical purposes, is what sort of papers you're feeding that. For instance, I was looking at a physics paper that was bound to the physics. I thought, oh, this looks pretty cool. I said, no, it's bullshit. Just a big pile of shit. I thought, well, okay. And I use it, the truth is there are a lot of papers that are bad for methodological reasons or due to dishonesty on the researchers' parts. Unfortunately, we catch them, and one that, I think of, that I'm thinking of right now is Deepak Das, the fellow who did a lot of research on resveratrol. We found that his papers were not exactly up to snuff, and that was a big humiliating ordeal for them. I'm sure one day you can make a computer that would do that, that would have that same human intuition of looking at a paper and saying, this does not fit somehow. On the other hand, if it's going through papers that are in-house, that have been put together by a particular corporation for one reason or another, or just by someone who wants to publish as much as possible and look very good doing it, it might come to the wrong conclusion. The problem, of course, is not with the machine, but with human beings who are producing these crappy papers. Yes, and that's uh, definitely a big concern, uh, which is to say there are some incentives within academia for anybody who wants tenure or even tenured professors who wish to maintain a certain reputation or funding for their uh, positions and departments to keep publishing uh, keep putting their names out there, even if, uh, let's say, their research is a bit lackluster or they've tried something and they failed. Uh, I think it's this publisher-perish pressure uh, that contributes to people trying to crank out uh, a lot of mediocre research as opposed to uh, really focusing on genuine breakthroughs, genuine contributions. I think it's a lot more honest and a lot more commendable for someone to publish a paper saying, I've worked 20 years on this problem, and unfortunately I've tried X, Y, and Z, and it didn't uh, really uh, bring about any results that are, for instance, better than uh, the outcomes of the control group, if it's, say, research into medical treatments. I think that's actually an approach that contributes more to science because uh, now you at least know that somebody has tried something and it didn't work. Uh, now you at least know uh, about an avenue that perhaps isn't as fruitful as was initially thought. Uh, but yes, I, I agree. There is pressure to produce something remarkable, and everybody in academia feels that pressure. And unfortunately, there's not enough recognition or respect for the scientific process where I think even the failures as long as there is a an earnest and a valiant attempt need to be commended uh, to some extent and the people who are willing to devote themselves to these paths need to have some sort of reward even if they don't massively 
uh, revolutionize the field, so to speak. Uh, so uh, I, I do concur with you. Uh, and of course, real science is difficult. The scientific method uh, followed methodically requires one to have uh, a certain, uh, let's say, sense of deference to the truth. Some might call it humility. Uh, I don't really like that term, but it's a recognition that uh, one doesn't know everything, that one might fail, and that uh, the point is not to succeed every time, but the point is to search for the truth. Uh, so just to make sure we have time to discuss this thoroughly, let's talk about regenerative medicine. Of course, uh, for me, that's an area uh, that uh, I want to succeed in a dramatic fashion. Uh, it seems to me the most proximate uh, out of uh, all of the approaches we've discussed. And of course, gene therapy is a part of it, but Aubrey de Grey has his SENS program, a seven-pronged approach where he identifies seven types of damage that constitutes an essence. And it seems like uh, there hasn't been an eighth discovered in three and a half decades. Uh, so uh, we have, in a sense, a catalog of perils that could be combated. So what do you think about the prospects of regenerative medicine as a whole and SENS in particular, and how the SENS project itself is likely to fare and contribute? The forerunner of regenerative medicine is prolotherapy, which goes back to the 1950s involving solution of dextrose and some other odds and ends injected into the desired site to stimulate healing. And there have been promising trials for the treatment of diabetes, for back pain, for, I believe, Alzheimer's, maybe wrong about that, with the use of stem cells. And with pluripotent stem cells, we can do just about anything we'd want. Again, however, we run into the obstacle of targeting the organ and figuring out exactly how things are going to work, which is where bioprinting comes in. There are many, many more people who need organs than are going to get them, and that's why the waiting lists are so long. Bioprinting also has the advantage of being something that can be done on a small scale, and again, the primary obstacle in the way of perfecting it does not involve engineering or really a lack of funding, but it's an intellectual one, learning how to properly create the organ, how to seed the cells, how to build the scaffolds. It requires certainly more expertise, more education than some of the other things we've mentioned, but it's not beyond reach, and I would like to give a shout-out to Leslie Frost for being kind enough to give me a 3D printer, which I will be using for plastic initially, and perhaps I will modify a Canon or some other printer first and begin printing two-dimensional stem cells, thus moving on, and then moving on to bladders, kidneys, Maybe kidneys, but that's a toughie. Kidneys well, and livers. Uh, please do keep me updated as to uh, what uh, you're going to do with that 3D printer, uh, even uh, if it's as basic as printing a little figurine of something. Uh, I am very intrigued about 
the prospect of this technology essentially disseminating into households, uh, becoming available for individuals, even to manufacture little trinkets. But of course, as you mentioned, the 3D printing of organs is something uh, that promises to be extremely beneficial. Now, there have already been uh, efforts, successful efforts to uh, print, uh, say, tracheas, bladders, uh, these kinds of hollow uh, organs. And I believe a three-year-old child's life was saved uh, when a team at Wake Forest University replaced her trachea with a 3D printed uh, biocompatible trachea. She was born uh, with a genetic defect where her trachea wasn't working properly. So they saved her life and she's now able to uh, live a healthy, fulfilling life. And uh, I think it would be remarkable if this technology progressed to the point where we could print lungs, hearts, uh, stomachs, uh, the kinds of organs that if you lose today, uh, it's virtually impossible to live a healthy life anymore, to say the least, even if you can be kept artificially alive uh, for a few months. Uh, so yes, it's, it's another promising area. So you could have gene therapy uh, making improvements to organs that are already there or fixing damage. And then you can have these bioprinted organs just wholesale uh, replacing uh, the organs that might have been damaged. And uh, the synthesis of the two approaches can uh, definitely improve health. Uh, so I am interested also, uh, where do you think uh, Aubrey de Grey's role in this comes in in terms of his foundation? He has a couple million dollars a year of funding. Peter Thiel is supporting him. Uh, he's doing some research, uh, let's say on the low-hanging fruit of areas where others uh, aren't as heavily focused. So he's not uh, per se doing the uh, cancer research or the stem cell therapy as much because a lot of others are trying uh, for it. But he has other projects like uh, Mitosens and Glycosens and Lysosens uh, that are interesting as well. Uh, do you have any thoughts about his work? Well, he is the Elvis of the life extension community, so we have to tip our hats to him. The most recent book I've read by him was on the mitochondrial theory of aging. And of course, mitochondria is exposed to a lot of free radicals because it's the powerhouse of the cell. But we know by looking into animals that display negligible senescence, like the naked mole rat, mitochondrial damage is not the beginning and end of aging. It is a component, and unfortunately I do not have a list of the seven elements of sense right here at this moment, but it, when I looked at it some time ago, it looked like a fairly comprehensive roadmap. But we cannot say this discipline ought to be developed first and this one ought to be ignored until this field has caught up to this point. That is insane micromanaging and it is the apex of what Hayek called the pretense of knowledge. The greatest innovations we will see will 
likely come from unlikely connections. And it is impossible now to deny the necessity of the generalist, of the person who is able to synthesize large amounts of information. This is a war we are fighting on many fronts. It is not just being conducted by the scientists on the front lines, those working in laboratories. We all can and must do our part. It, uh, life must be preserved. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Absolutely. Uh, and I definitely agree. Uh, after all, it's one thing to articulate a roadmap. It's another thing to uh, develop effective solutions to uh, every roadblock that one might encounter along the path. And certainly, uh, Aubrey de Grey makes a point of this. We don't even know a lot of what we don't know about human metabolism, it's such a complex process. So his focus, uh, knowing that there is so much we don't know, is on repairing the damage, figuring out ways to approach senescence as an engineering problem, uh, as opposed to uh, just a knowledge problem, which is a lot vaster. Uh, so uh, I think his principal contribution, uh, apart from just identifying the roadmap, is shifting the focus from first trying to understand everything and then uh, figuring out a way to alter the metabolism uh, in order to slow down aging, which is a lot uh, of what the research prior to DeGray has been focused on, instead towards saying, okay, we are going to learn some more facts about human metabolism and how it works over time, but that's not going to be fast enough to save us. So instead, uh, we should focus on engineering the solutions to the types of damage that occur to each and every one of us over time. Uh, so uh, I really appreciate our multifaceted discussion today. Uh, we've touched on many areas from uh, gene therapy and uh, bioinformatics uh, and regenerative medicine, even to a bit of artificial intelligence, a bit of the state of scientific research and some of the incentives that researchers face to uh, how DIY enthusiasts and researchers can help out. Uh, so I would like to give you the last word or words in this conversation. Uh, what would you like to touch on in greater detail uh, from any of the areas of our discussion. As you know, this February, my grandfather passed away. This June, three people close to me needed biopsies. One of them was negative, one was positive, and one is still unknown. I want to tell people that you are not powerless in this struggle. Each and every one of us can do our part. I want to say that ultimately transcendence, in the technological sense and the mystical sense, stems from this sword of selflessness. It is my honor and my privilege to have known people like Alex, like Liz, like Luis, like Eureka, like Maria, and like you. 
All of you are doing your part to make this a better future. And in my mind, you are fulfilling the highest calling, which is the preservation of life and health.